misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. When you think about the journeys that life can take you through, uh, you never know where you end up. Oftentimes, students go to college, they earn their degree with a game plan in mind, but life has a way of just kind of uh, interceding on your behalf, and Providence gets you where you ought to be. My guest today is a, an educator, uh, some would say a politician, some would say a political analyst, political strategist, or sometimes agitator, Carol G. Robinson. Thanks for making yourself available for my brother podcast. I like agitator. Thanks, man. Um, this is a great thing you're doing. Uh, we talked about it the other day, and so I'm just glad to be here and be a part of this, uh, what I think is an outstanding project. Thank you, man. And I'll get right into it. Tell us a bit about your background. Let's go back to where you're from and just sort of a short synopsis of how you wound up where you are today. Well, my favorite thing is a memory from childhood. I was actually born in Kingston, Jamaica. Most people don't know I'm a naturalized citizen. Um, and I came here in 1970, uh, actually to New Jersey. And so I grew up in New Jersey, went to public school in New Jersey, public school number 15. Um, then Martin Luther King Middle School, then transferred from there to school 21, graduated from John F. Kennedy High School and uh, ended up in college in South Jersey. Um, I never knew why New Jersey was called the Garden State literally until I went off to college because Central and South Jersey is so much different from Patterson. I grew up in North Jersey, um, but I went down to a place called Stockton State College. Um, pretty big liberal arts place now, but when I got there, it was a small school, probably about 10 years old, uh, probably the most formative experience of my life. Um, I was a political science major and I, the college offered a certificate in African-American studies and I met a man by the name of Franklin Jones. Um, there was another professor, um, I can't think of, Sean Donaldson and Harvey Kesselman and Gene Jones. Gene and Harvey were administrators. Sean and Franklin were um, professors and they were the cornerstone of the African-American um, studies program. When I was in high school, Roots had just come out and still to this day, that's probably the biggest hole that I have in my soul. I really don't know where I'm from. Um, and so that drives me in, in, to a certain degree. I wish I were Alex Haley and could figure out who my people were. Um, and maybe one of those DNA tests will do that for me one of these days. But at Stockton State College, I learned about my history um, of Black folks globally, internationally. And um, I found a mentor outside of my family, Harvey Kesselman. And so my real job when I went to college was to read management books. And at the end of the day, I'd come and visit with Harvey Kesselman and we'd talk about them. I wanted to be president of student government. Harvey said, ah, nobody wants to be the president. 
What you really want to be is in charge of the money and always write the report. And those two things still animate my life to this day. That's why I write so much um, because it, it stays. The verbal is transient. People forget it. But when you write it down on a piece of paper, email, digitally now, it stays. Um, sometimes really good, sometimes bad, but it stays. Um, Harvey's who encouraged me to go off to law school. Actually, he made me go to Washington, D.C., and I went to D.C. when I was a sophomore in college. I, I went to college on a, on a track scholarship um, because my club track coach knew Larry James, who was one of the Olympians doing the Black Power movement. Mm -hmm. um, he died a couple of years ago, but he was he and um, uh, uh, Evans were uh, two of the first sub four hundred, uh, sub forty, four hundred uh, back then when the four hundred meter was four hundred yards back then. Right, right. But I went there, ran track, played basketball. I got out of basketball my sophomore year when going into my junior year, when some kid who was a freshman the year before grew like six inches and dunked on me. And I figured, you know, I thought I had an NBA career, but that kind of went away. But I ended up going to DC because of Harvey. And I worked uh, intern for the National Conference of Black Mayors and met a guy by the name of Stan Alexander, who also adopted me and mentored me and took me all around the country. So I tell people all the habits I have are from the people who mentored me. So every place Stan Alexander went, this was blessing, highly favored. He took me. So I met Jesse Jackson for the first time. I met Dutch Moriel. Um, Harold Washington was alive. I met Harold Washington on Capitol Hill. Um, I, I, I call it the, the tail end of that first generation of uh, modern black folks on Capitol Hill. Um, I met all of those folks and I met another man who turned out, I didn't know it at the time, turned out to be a graduate of Texas Southern University where I've taught for almost 30 years now. Um, he was executive director of the National Bar Association. And when I was in law school, I'd, I'd come John Crump and I'd stop at his office at the end of every day. Uh, so I went to law school for like one year. The other two years, I hung out at John Crump's office at the National Bar Association. Um, I described myself as a logician and I got that all from John Crump. He taught me how to organize a meeting. He got me involved in um, black politics even more and the black legal community. And in part, that's how I ended up here in Houston from all the black lawyers I met um, when I came here, I used to call them the Mississippi Mafia. There was a bunch of black lawyers who had come to Texas from Mississippi. And I met them when I was in law school, including, but she's not from Mississippi, but um, Al Janita Scott Davis was a real powerhouse, still is. And they befriended me and I got my first job and I moved to Houston, Texas and have carried on ever since. Sorry about being so long, but no, that that's uh, that's excellent. Uh, it's remarkable. Obviously, we've known each other for years, but it's always ref it's refreshing in a sense to sort of string the narrative together. Yeah. But I've heard you 
uh, make mention or reference to some of these different experiences that you've had with these folks. I want to go a little further back, though. But talk to me a bit about your upbringing in Kingston, Jamaica, and then how you transitioned as an immigrant at such a young age to now living in the Garden State. Well, I, I, I'll tell you two stories, um, and I still remember them. Uh, you know, the, uh, Kingston is the capital, the big city, and I was born in a Jubilee Hospital. And when you talk to most Jamaicans, they don't they don't think anybody that's really that said they were born in Kingston really is from Jamaica. But I was born in Kingston. The first four of us were born. There's six kids in my family. I lost my brother a couple of years ago, but we the first four of us were born in Jamaica. The last two were born in America. But I remember my uncle and I, you'd have to catch the bus to go into the country to see my grandmother. It's one of the, the, the earliest memories I have. And um, I remember the bus going into the country and um, you know the bus drivers would blow the hair on because there's no line in the street. And it was and the bus driver was playing on the air horn, a pretty girl we want, a pretty girl we want. Going into the country, there'd be people on the top of the bus. Um, but I spent a lot of uh, time in those early years in the country at my grandmother's place no electricity, uh, no indoor plumbings, none of that. Um, but from from that and my dad, um, you know, I, I got, I think that the strength I have, uh, my dad was a serious, disciplinary, hardworking person. Um, and that was always uh, imparted on us that you have to be serious, work hard, get good education. Um, my mom probably was even tougher than my dad, but she was the, the 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 nice, soft one in the family. But if you got got wrong way, my dad was the softy. Um, but um, I remember my sister and I used to take the bus. We were little kids. Um, my oldest sister, and we used to take the bus, and I still remember. There wasn't any machines like now on Metro, you get on, you put the change in, or now you use sure. your car. Sure. But the lady on the bus who was a friend of my mom that would make sure we were okay. I still remember this day, all the different Jamaican coins lined up in her hand when you got on the bus so she could make change to let you get on the bus. Um, but uh, my mom came to America, she got sponsored. I could tell you that whole story, which is, fabulously interesting. And she left us and my dad, the four kids and my dad. And then she eventually sponsored my dad. So both of my parents came to America and they started out, um, hope my mom doesn't see it, but they started out as domestic workers, cleaning other people's homes, but they left the four kid. Um, I don't remember this, but a couple of years ago, you know, as I've gotten older now, my dad passed back in 2004 my mother will reminisce with us. And she tells the story that my aunt had a rock in the fridge. The, the rock is at my mother's house, but the writing is gone now. And uh, um, rock said, if you are hungry, take and eat. And it was in the refrigerator. Uh, my mom remembers that. That's one of the most powerful memories she has, that her sister took care of her own kids and my mom's four kids while my mom and my dad um, were in America 
trying to get started. Um, I still remember the house I lived at with my aunt. It was raised and you could go underneath, you know, and entertain yourself by playing around in the dirt and chasing bugs and the like. And in the back was a barbed wire fence and uh, the cows were there. Part of the reason I moved to Houston um, was it reminded me of Jamaica when I first came here. Mm. It was hot and out 59, I swear my, I swear I remember um, palm trees being out 59 going south. And I was like, man, this is just like being in Jamaica. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So you, at the age of nine, relocate to Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah. What was that like? And then take me through those years through high school and how you wound up at Stockton. Never saw snow before in my life. Didn't even know it was cold. But I remember the first time it snowed. We lived on uh, on Ellison Street, um, basically in the attic. And we had two double beds. Me and Marcus slept in one bed. Colleen and Allison slept in the other. My mom, they hadn't had Gina and Suzette yet. And we were in the same room and two of us in each of the double beds. There was a little room next to our little apartment space that was locked. Um, I still remember, this is crazy stuff you remember when you start talking, was filled with a bunch of junk, including like a little, one of those little riding horses on the springs sure. and a doll face right next to the stairs. But we put the first snowman we ever built, a little bitty thing, in the in the freezer, mm. the, the pull top freezer, because mm -hmm. of the first time we ever saw snow. Uh, but back then, they used to let you come home for lunch from public school. So you'd see all the kids walk to school in the morning, walk home to lunch, and we'd come home. We'd have Campbell because my mother worked the night shift. My dad worked the day shift. So we'd come home. We'd have some kind of Campbell soup and a cheese sandwich on toast. Um, and we'd come home at the end of the day, my Gigantor and Speed Racer. And then there was Kimba the White Lion, what a cartoons I, I watched. Um, I had a really great friend, Mark Medley. He actually ended up moving down the street from my mom's house a couple of years ago. Uh, but we went through uh, grammar school, middle school together, we went to different high school. But we went to the boys club back then. And I played chess. I still love to read, played pool, bumper pool. Uh, they used to do, you know, the little award kind of thing was you help set up and break down bingo <laughs> in the gymnasium before you get to play basketball. Sure. Um, and then I, we went to Kennedy uh, High School. So I, I, I played basketball maybe about a month, month and a half ago. I got a group text out of the blue from my high school basketball team. I didn't even remember this. I um, in 1980, Patterson Kennedy won the Passaic County Basketball Championship. Mm -hmm. I, I literally have a jacket that I got a, a couple weeks after we had the group text. What happened? Uh, Patterson, the basketball team, won the championship uh, this past season. And they were getting jackets. And on the back of the jacket was all the years the high school team had won the championship. Mm. And the first time we ever won the county championship was 1980. 
And somehow a bunch of the other people found everybody's number and we started catching up and reminiscing. And we ended up getting a version of the jacket that the newest team got. Oh, wow. And I got that in the mail the other day. It's actually sitting on the couch in the living room area. I tried it on and I put it down. I still haven't put it in the closet because it brought back such great memories. But I went to Patterson Kennedy. I played basketball. I played basketball all the time, all the way through high school. You know, the thing on the East Coast was ride your bicycle around and go play basketball in the summertime. I went to a basketball camp. You know, that was going to be my thing. And uh, as hard as it is to believe, I used to be able to dunk a basketball with two hands. I was a 6'5", 6'6", high jumper, um, 22, 23 feet long jumper. I was an all-county triple jumper in in high school. And one day at basketball practice, the track coach saw me double step and dunk the basketball and said, you should come and run track. It turns out track is what got me to college. Um, you know, I went to college probably all, all by accident. Uh, my sister, older sister was a, a year ahead of me and she went to Rutgers in uh, New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody else in our family had gone to college before. And it wasn't really something that was on my, my mind. You know, my parents wanted us to learn and all that, but it wasn't like you gotta go to college Beep, 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 beep. Um, and somebody said, I should go, you know, back then over to guidance council, they put up the signs and they'd write your name in your senior year and where you got accepted. To the best of my recollection, I only applied to one place and it turned out that was the same place, Stockton State, that my high school track coach knew Larry James and suggested he recruited me. <clears throat> it was a Division three school, and I ended up going there on a track scholarship, really a financial aid package with a little bit of scholarship money in there. And I played basketball, ran track. If you look at my transcript, you you can see when I when I realized first and second year, and then third and fourth year, I got it. And um, I, I went to law school in D.C. because I'd gone down there and interned and loved it. Plus, it was the warmest place I got accepted to that gave me the most money. So, I mean, I didn't know anything. You know, when you don't when you don't have a pathfinder, when you don't have somebody that's done it before, um, you really you really just don't know. And information wasn't readily available. You know, I wasn't thinking about all the things uh, young people think about now. But I went to George Washington University for law school, which is a good school. Yeah, it's like a top 20, 25 law school in America, probably mm-hmm. higher now. Uh, but I went not because of any of those considerations. I went because it was Washington. I loved Washington. And it was the warmest place I got accepted. I got accepted to like Dickerson, uh, I think Syracuse, a bunch of different places. But they were cold. I didn't, you know, I didn't... Uh, I didn't know anything about the West Coast. Uh, I actually went to Stockton State College because it was like two and a half hours straight down the Garden State Parkway mm-hmm. from Patterson. Um, I had gotten accepted to Morris Brown in Atlanta and gotten a basketball scholarship offer. 
Well, my, I'd never been to Atlanta. Um, my parents didn't know how to get to Atlanta mm-hmm. and they wanted me somewhere where if something went wrong, they could drive to. My dad, my dad has never driven a car, didn't never drove a car in his life. And so they didn't they didn't want us to be far away because they just didn't know yeah. how to get there. You know, I mean, one time my dad came to my parents came to Houston, they took the bus. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, they were they were sophisticated country folk. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh now as they went along in time and the, the kids got older, mm-hmm. airline travel, but this was a guy that had no no him and his wife had no real formal education, mm-hmm. never drove a car, couldn't drive, couldn't sign his name. So, you know, he was just working hard to make a life for his kids. And as we got older and quote unquote more sophisticated, we could help access more things for him. Yeah. I mean, but that that's the short version of it. Incredible. So you um You've been rerouted by uh, a, a slam dunk uh, <laughs> in your face. Uh, you've made some similarly interesting and important connections and mentorship relationships, mm-hmm. which kind of helped you think about what your next steps needed to be. Now you end up at Georgetown. Uh, George Washington. George Washington. Do I not ever do that. Do not. We do not like those. I'm I'm ashamed to 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 say this, okay. but I had a nephew graduate from Georgetown. Ah, that must be what I was thinking about. So you you're at George Washington, and you've met some folks who've sort of uh, uh, started shaping your thinking and where to go from there. How did you encounter uh, the gentleman who had you hanging out at the National Bar Association? And can you talk a bit more about what the experience was like traveling and meeting some of the people you talked about, Jesse Jackson, Dutch Morrell, who used to be the mayor of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was another mayor, Harold Washington of Chicago. Mm-hmm. This was when he was on Capitol Hill as a member of Congress. Um, you know, at, at the time things are happening, you don't think about them that way, uh, but literally, if I hadn't ended up on the track team, um, my life may have been totally different because ending up on the track team put me on a path to end up at Stockton State College. I, I, I still to this day tell people that was the greatest educational experience of my life, even, even more formative than going to law school. Uh, but law school, I didn't go to law school to practice law. I really went to law school to understand how America works as a system. Uh, what Harvey Kesselman gave me was systemic understanding and why or things happen and how they should happen if they were going to happen. Uh, so for the 1980s, if there was a management book out, I read it and had conversations about it. So when I went to D.C., um, I met a guy that worked at a law firm, Wald, Harkrader, and Ross, brother. Um, He's deceased now. Um, I'm I'm seeing his face. I just can't think of his name. It'll come to me. Um, But he ended up giving me a reference 
for the apartment I lived in in the Dorchester on 16th Street, which was across from Howard University's dorms and Antioch Law School at the time. But when I get to George Washington, because of um, the nurturing I got at Stockton from Sean and Franklin, uh, the, one of the first things I really did was I went to go protest apartheid at the South African Embassy. And I met a young guy who turned out to be executive director of the National Black uh, Law Students Association. And the Law Students Association office was at the National Bar office. And he brought me over to the National Bar Association for the first time. And that's how I met John Crump. Uh, Maurice, Maurice Foster was this young guy's name. He was in law school at Antioch at the time. And so that's what started me in to being active in the National Bar Association. Maurice is who in introduced me to the National Black Law Students Association. Until I went to law school, I'd never heard of them. Um, but I got active, interested, and the reason I say I only went to law school for one year after my first year of law school, I basically traveled around the country getting to know black law students in other places around the country because I wanted to be national chairman of the National Black Law Students Association. Um, for me, I, I wasn't interested in a big firm. That was never my thing. And so I did end up becoming national chairman of the National Black Law Students Association. I think I was the first national chairman from George Washington University. Um, and I spent my, south, my second and third year of law school really traveling around, getting involved in legal issues um, from a law student perspective, got active too in the American Bar Association. And all those things would come back to play a role when I, I moved to Texas because I ended up serving on the state bar board as the first minority director. I served on the Texas Young Lawyers. For a while, I represented the State Bar of Texas and the American Bar Association House of Delegate. Um, so I was just active and hungry to know how America worked, why it worked the way it did, and how Black folk could figure out how to make it work better for us. And so that's what's always driven me. So you finished law school, Texas. What, well, where, where do you end up when you finally make this decision you find this place that reminds you so much of Jamaica, which those who live in Houston or they might not agree with that sentiment, but notwithstanding, something drew you to Houston. And then uh, what was that? What, so what brought you down here precisely? So here's, here's the serendipity of life. So when I go to DC, as a sophomore in college to work for, to intern, let me not say work, intern for the National Conference of Black Mayors DC office. Um, Michelle Karumba, the office was in Atlanta. Michelle Karumba was national executive director and Johnny Ford from Tuskegee, Alabama was national president. Walter Fauntleroy was the delegate for the District of Columbia. And Walter Fauntleroy was taking young black people and sending them around the country to go work on campaigns. 
Stan Alexander sent me to do that. I'll back up one quick second. The first time I ever met Donna Brazil was because I was tasked as the National Conference of Black Mayors DC office intern to go work with Donna Brazil on the first reenactment of the March on Washington. And so I'm, you know, I meet all these people when we're young and we're meeting the Jesse Jacksons of the world. But I drive to Yazoo, Mississippi. Yazoo, Mississippi, for the very first time in my life I've been to Mississippi. And I go to help a young guy running for Congress by the name of Mike Espy. Mike Espy ends up winning a seat in Congress. And the guy that drove the minivan ends up being his chief of staff. So I graduate from law school. I come here because I came here the first time to Houston for, I'm, a, I'm a, in my second year of law school, I come for a regional meeting. I come back the third time as national chair. I bring the national convention and our keynote speaker is Mike Espy, who I went and volunteered on his campaign, and because I know his chief of staff, I get him to come here. Mike Espy from Mississippi, all the Mississippi lawyers I had met as a law student, so they help support the camp, camp the, the convention, and I build relationships. I get a job offer, and so I come to Houston. I'm a plaintiff's lawyer uh, with Shelley Ross and Carver Henry on um, Wheeler, right across from what is going to be the Ion, there's that, um, I think it's a Jack in the Box or something, fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. And the other building with the link fence around it used to be Shelly and Carver's office. Um, and I practiced law, the senior associate at the time. I, I don't think that was his official title, but he was a couple of years ahead of me, um, was Harry Johnson. And so that's how I met Harry Johnson. For folks who are watching, Harry Johnson is the alpha who led the foundation effort to build the Martin Luther King Monument on the Mall in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, but before he became famous, we were young lawyers together. Sure. Um, supported Harry when he ran for the State House the first time. He didn't win. Um, if he if he'd have won, he probably wouldn't have ended up being the person who builds the MLK monument on the mall, you know. So um, I've, I've become old enough to know that every door not opening doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means there's a there's a, a opportunity that really is the path you're supposed to be on. And so those things string together. But when I move here and I'm practicing law, I, I call it play. I want to play. And so Kathy Whitmire, who's mayor at the time, wants to build monorail. Well, guess what House Committee Mike Espy, my friend, serves on? House Transportation. So I call up my buddy, his chief of staff, who I drove with to Yazoo City, Mississippi, and say, could you bring the congressman to Houston? And I organize a fundraiser for Mike Espy but it's really the real purpose, not so much the fundraiser. The real purpose is to use Mike Espy to help me get in to know the political class in Houston by having an event for somebody that could play a key role in something the city wants. Yeah. 
and I invite everybody. I remember now, I'm not from Houston. I don't know anybody uh, per se. And I invite all these people and I'm sitting in the law office and I get a call from a guy I do not know. And he says, hey, this is Rodney Ellis. I'm down in Florida doing something. I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. But we ain't going to let you embarrass the city. We're not going to let you embarrass the congressman. We're going to come out and support your fundraiser. That's how I get to know Rodney Ellis, who's city council member at the time, one of the best friends of Mickey. And they all show up. Mickey Leland. Mickey Leland. Congressman. Yeah. Rodney Craig Washington, Anthony Hall, Kathy Whitmire, you name it, the who's who of Houston's politics shows up for a fundraiser hosted by a nobody. One of the things I tell people about Houston, and I think it's as wildcat or heritage more than Dallas, it's a place where still to this day, anybody will take the first meeting with anybody because they all think this may be the person I make my millions of dollars with literally and figuratively. Sure. And so all these people show up for this fundraiser and that's how I become friends with Rodney Ellis, get to know all these other folks, including Mickey, who was alive at the time. And I can't even tell in some short period of time, sadly, Rodney and I build our friendship, but, um, Mickey, Mickey dies in Africa in the plane crash. Um, On the way to Ethiopia. Yeah. And everybody thinks Rodney is going to go to Washington. He turns out he doesn't want to be in D.C. because his friend is gone. And he ends up um, succeeding Craig, who, Craig Washington, who gets elected to Congress. Rodney ends up being elected to the state Senate. And I'm in my office again, and I get another call from Rodney Ellis again. And and um, they call a, a special session. And Rodney Ellis calls me up and says, hey, why don't you come to Austin with me for 30 days? We'll hang out. You make a few contacts, go back, practice law. Um, one of the reasons why I reach out and, and mentor so many young people is because all these people did the same thing for me. You know, why I take people to meetings with me? Because that's how I was raised. And I go to Austin, and it turns out that I end up staying in Austin for two years working with uh, with Rodney. Um, I'm going broke because government work is not, you're going to make a lot of money work. Right. And James Douglas, again, I don't think since my first job washing desktops in the CETA program that I really ever interviewed for a job. And James Douglas calls me up. Who James Douglas is a former president of Texas Southern University, dean of the law school. At the time he calls me up, he's dean of the law school. And somebody he had hired decides not to come to work. And he's known me since law school knows that I spent these last two years in the legislature and he needs somebody to teach a class and he invites me to come teach for a semester. I'm going for a fill-in. Well, I've been at Texas Southern University now tenured for almost 30 years. 
again, I had no plans to be in education. It's just that I had built friendships and relationships and developed a skill set. So when an opportunity presented itself, somebody who know, uh, knew me offered me the opportunity. So that's how I ended up in teaching. Um, I literally, within 10 years of coming to Houston, I get elected um, as an at-large city council member. Um, again, I think just, you know, uh, a lot of time when young people come to me and they say, I wanna, I wanna run, my advice to them is, don't think about running. Just think about doing what you have an interest in doing, um, whatever community service participation. If you just do that, you'll be surprised at how many friendships, relationships, um, and how much goodwill you build. You know, I mean, I, if there's an organization in Houston, at some point I've been involved. Um, if somebody has asked for a speaker, um, I've gone. Uh, my wife uh, says to me all the time, why? And I just go, well, cause somebody else sold into me. Um, you know, uh, Chris Hollins, who's the interim uh, county clerk for Harris County. Yeah. Uh, the first time I met Chris, um, this was a couple of years. Well, the first time we met the second time, um, he goes, you don't remember me. And I go, mm -mm. well, it turns out that when he was um, a younger person, I went someplace to give a speech to a group of students and he was one of the students and that's where he remembers me from. And now he's one of my best political, my best friends, not politics, best friends who is one of this younger group of folks I've had the privilege of mentoring. I go to a church um, maybe about a year, year and a half ago to be on a panel discussion um, and there's somebody on the panel with me. After the panel finished, they look over at me and they go, you don't remember me. And I go, man, I know who you are. And they go, no, you, you don't remember me. And he reminds me, well, when you were on city council, you had a youth council. And I was one of your youth council members. That's how I know you. Mm. You know me from my activism in the community, but it started as a youth council member. Interesting. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think if people just do those things, um, not, to, not to be overly religious, God will put you where you're supposed to be. Sure. You know, it's like the same thing with us. I mean, it's a couple of years after I leave council, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big black people need to be wealthy person. And I'm sitting at home and I get a call and they invite me to come be on the chamber, run the chamber, black chamber here in town. I remember you, you and I end up on the chamber board, Jeff Boney, who's now a big time newspaper man and city council member down in Missouri city. But we go over there and we transform the chamber and now three or four iterations of leadership later, Greater Houston Black Chamber, they now have a, a formalized leadership program, but it's like everything we 
did. Yeah. We just structured and said, here you go, pass it on, and it's growing. And you see that public sector, that private sector, that nonprofit um, group of young people growing up around you. I'm old enough to be near the front of the generational line um, where when I came to Houston, I was um, at the back of the line in terms of being the young, the sure. young, the young group. Yeah. Now we're probably like the next to the oldest group. So it's always not you. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you're like the gen, the Gen Zer, uh, with the other group behind you. Yeah. You know, yeah. not literally, but sequentially. Uh, so you know, all those accidental things that at the time I wasn't paying any attention to, all ended up to this. In fact, just a couple of weeks before the lockdown, I ended up on stage at the AME Churches Conference Future Black America um, with Mike Espy, who's running uh, for the United States Senate. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't all accidental, though. You go from working for a state senator, you wind up um, on faculty at the law school, Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Uh, then comes this, um, you know, this opportunity where you, uh, you, you, you end up on city council, right? You ascend this throne of leadership, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, what led to that and what were all the elements that it took for that to happen? And, and I want you to think of it in the context of too often, uh, as you've acknowledged, people come and say they want to run for office, uh, but they don't understand what the, the foundational work has to be. And then beyond just the foundational work, so many other pieces have to come together uh, for that to occur. So why don't you, how did you reach that decision and then what happens next? So I, I, I never had any plan to run for public office. You know, in some ways, I, you know, the immigrant mindset that I'm an immigrant, you know, so you Stay kind of, place. yeah, you kind of in, but you not in everything because that ain't your, that ain't your thing. Um, I just got involved <clears throat> and I'm a past president in the Houston Lawyers Association. So I was doing things in, in my space. I was active in the uh, NAACP Houston branch. Um, but one day, honestly, um, when my when my dad came to Houston um, for the first time when I came here, he tried to encourage me to buy property, the immigrant thing. And all I wanted was my house. I didn't I didn't want the responsibility of being in charge of everything else. I just wanted mine. But I looked up one day. Um, and just started looking around and all the black neighborhoods, um, quote unquote, were blighted. Yeah. They were just in bad shape. And I was trying to figure out how could I help address what I saw to be the problem. So I'm a big homeowner fan. Mm -hmm. um, I still know the address. 
790, uh, 794 Madison Avenue. My parents still, my mom still lives at the second house we ever owned. Madison Avenue was the first one. It was a duplex. We lived upstairs and we rented downstairs, help pay. Um, so I was also a college professor at the time and I liked data and reading. And so when you looked at it still to this day, the house is the cornerstone of wealth for black folks. It's not stocks and bonds, gold, silver, and all that stuff. It's the equity you accumulate in your house. We generally don't get into the house flipping business. It's maybe a starter to a permanent yeah. Madison Ave to 14th Ave. And third ward, fourth ward was gone. Which are the historical black communities yeah. in Houston. Um, the North Side, Fifth Ward, and I was just like, you know, where where can I go to have the biggest impact? And I looked around, and for me, it was like, oh, I could do something about this problem on city council. And what the fix was at the time was fix the property tax rates because every year your appraised value was going up. And unless you were going to flip your house, it, it wasn't real money to you, but it cost you real money. You had to pay the increase in taxes. And there was just tons and tons of vacant property where the taxes owed were higher than the value of the property. And it wasn't being transferred from one generation to the next. And so I was like, I, I want to help fix that problem. And it turned out for me, the best place I could fix it, I didn't think about the legislature, any of it was like, I think I can help fix that on city council. And that's what made me run for council. Um, and ended up being on council. I was a big reduced property tax rate guy. Um, you know, my mother said my one my, my one thing that I've always been too early and I don't think people understood at the time what it meant to not try to help people hold on to their property. They just didn't see it. Um, there was, there was, there was one person we overlapped and they used to always talk about when they raise taxes, it's nothing but a happy meal. And it's funny the things that shape you in life. Um, I remember one summer I was in college at Stockton State, and I I hadn't gotten a job as at the time yet, you know. And and my my friends had gotten jobs, but I still remember to this day what it felt like not to be able to jump in the car and go to McDonald's, put your hand in your pocket, and pull out the dollar bill. And I, I think a burger was like probably 29 cents then, but you just didn't have your own money to pay. And I still remember when we were kids, um, when we came to America, I remember the first time we went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, that was a big deal. It was a treat. Yeah, that, you know, that for my mom and dad to be able to afford to take their four kids and I just didn't think people really understood when they said it's just a happy meal, how hard people were really working out in the community to be able to afford just to get their kids a happy meal. Yeah. 
And that combined with your, you, you, you are causing black wealth to disappear. And, you know, I always tell people, I said, you know, you rather, you rather make your, your margin on, on volume than selling one thing. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to, in the city, in my belief, still, still to this date, um, they were trying to make revenue off increasing taxes instead of building more housing. They were and, trying to make it on margin versus volume. Absolutely. Yeah. And you had, you had people who would take care of an empty lot next to their house 10, 15, 20 years, but the city wouldn't figure out how to pass an ordinance or go change state law. So Lalu Davies, who'd been taking care of the property, now we call it Sweat Equity and Habitat for Humanity, you go out there, help build it, they give it to you, could figure out how to let Mr. Davis have that property so that he could pay me $100 a month uh, a year in property taxes, where now we weren't getting any property tax revenue on it. And if Mr. Davis wasn't taking care of it, at the time when I got to City Hall, we were spending something like $30 million a year mowing overgrown lots and boarding up dangerous buildings or tearing them down. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. Why don't, we, why don't we find some people, help them to take control of the property, and then have them pay us taxes? Hmm. Uh, but you just couldn't. And people just couldn't get it. So, you know, sharing that experience, what did you learn about sort of the limitations of political power and, and the limitations that the political process itself um, sort of has in place that limits the ability of really transforming people's lives or communities or really bringing about substantive shifts in policy that can you know, essentially help make things better. So I'd say a couple of things. One, everybody elected to public office is not as smart as you think they are. Um, and too often people run and get elected and have no real idea about what they want to do or and or how to get it done. And in a lot of instances, the things they want to get done they run for the wrong office. It had nothing to do with fixing that problem. And so that's one set of the inherent limits. Then two, politics and elected office, the culture and the system is built to get to the lowest common denominator. And too often lowest common denominator really means status quo. It is, it is not the place of first solution. And in a lot of instances, it blocks the public sector, uh, the private sector, because if they haven't seen it, then it's like, a, uh, uh, it's like your body with a foreign invader. It is not happening. And you know, when I went to Austin, they used to say, it takes about four sessions, three or four sessions. Because the first time you introduce it, nobody knows what it is, so they just kill it. Mm -hmm. Then the second time, they're at least interested in listening to you. 
and maybe about the third or fourth time enough people understand what it is you're trying to do and what the problem is and what the solution is that you finally can get it to pass. It's the same way in city government, um, county government. It, it, it takes a long time for people to realize that just because this is the way it's been done in the past doesn't mean that that's still the best way to do it or the most efficient way. Um, but the system is just not built to operate more expeditiously because they think it's a, the system, the people in the system think it's a bad thing. And they think if, if, if I make a decision that's not what we've done on these 500 other things, I'm going to get into trouble. So I'd rather get into, I'd rather get into trouble for doing the same thing than get into trouble for doing something different because I can't get fired for doing the same thing. I could get fired for doing the new thing. Yeah. Even if it turns out that the new thing is better. So, I mean, when, when, we're sitting in the heart of uh, the bottoms of third ward. <clears throat> we could have saved it really in the nineties. And when you say save it, it's a neighborhood right now that's undergoing rapid gentrification. And back then, if we would have put into place the policies there now discussion and trying to figure out how to make the solution fit the new context, where it would have been a perfect solution a decade, two, three decades ago. The problem is they just didn't see it back then. And that's, that's, the, that's the limitation of being in public office. Uh, I, I, I now feel it's more freedom to get things done outside of public office in a lot of instances, or you have to find a bunch of similar situated and mindset folks and you run for a number of office. So when you get there, you have a group of you together that can get things done. So you run for city council and you win. And I think a, a, a lot of folks don't understand or appreciate one thing about the political process. Most people don't win the first time they run. No. Okay. Then, just because you win the first time you run, you still have bumps along the road. Oh, yeah. So talk to me a bit about some of the bumps you experience. You, you serve on council, and then what happens? So I'll, I'll, I'll describe it this way. I'm more of a, and I, I say to people this way, I'm more of an academician who fell into politics than I'm a politician. And what I mean by academician, I'm more of an idea and solution person than I am a politician. Uh, the reason why I describe myself as a logician, give me the problem. And it's, in part, it's the lawyer in me. And I, I'll, I'll figure out solutions. If, if I'm in charge, I can, I can pick what I believe is the best solution. If I'm not as your lawyer and counselor, I can say here are the multiple options pros and cons to solve your problem. And in elected office, what I thought was people wanted the problem fixed. What, what people in far too many instances want 
is the show. They want they 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 don't really know that fixing the problem is is the more important thing. They want you to show up and hear them emote. And I can do that, but I thought what was really the thing was fix the hole in your roof mm. so the rain stops falling in. What people really want is for, in too many instances, for you to listen to them complain about the rain falling in, wetting the furniture. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my first big problem. I wanted to fix the problem. Then my second big problem was um, I believe in black wealth and home ownership is an important ingredient to that. And I did not think that the city should be a contributor to that problem. Um, I'm also pretty independent minded. And in politics, people want you to be subservient to whoever they believe is the leader. And I thought here, I, I told everybody all the things I wanted to do when I got there and I got elected. So I had uh, ethical obligation to do what I promised. Well, that's not the way that people think the city of Houston should run. Um, they think the city of Houston is a fiefdom and the mayor is the king. And the city council members aren't really even members of the court. They, they are just supposed to be sycophants. And that's just never been my thing. And so uh, a lot of people got mad at me. Uh, but I take great pride in this. Still to this day, people still call me to help them fix problems. Um, you know, my wife will be with me someplace and she'll look at me and smile and say, um, you know, I guess they don't know that you're not their count the council member anymore. Mm -hmm. Because people still come to me as council member Robinson to help fix a problem. And I still do it because I'm wired to help you fix your problem. Um, it ended up costing me a seat in Congress, I think, because when I ran the first time, um, it's now the seat Al Green has. It was his congressional district. Yeah, nine. it was readjusted. At the time I, I ran, it ran all the way to Barrett Station. Nobody thought I was even, I even had a shot. I ended up in a runoff with Chris Bell, but a, a lot of people in the black community um, supported Chris. Chris and I are great friends. He's a good guy, was a good Congress member. Um, but they thought they were punishing me. Um, you know, but the, the Bible says something along the line, what 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 they meant for evil meant God meant for good. Um, it turned out um, I lost that race, but it was really time for me to go home anyway. Um, I, I, I had a son right at the, the time I started. Um, then let me do my side promotion. That's Orlando Kennedy. Hey, Orlando K on Instagram. Nice. Check out his music. Um, but he was really young. I, I, I tend to have obsessive compulsive tendencies. So if I'm working on something, I'm very absorbed in it. And Kirkland used to say Orlando is as nom de plure, his stage name um, was Little Baby. And, he, you know, he'd say, Daddy comes home when it's dark outside. 
if you ask him where I live, he, he'd say I live at City Hall. And so after I lost the congressional race, I was like, okay, that's my signal for it's time to do something else. So I finished up my time on council, but I went back to Texas Southern University and I went back to go back to the law school, uh, but it turned out unbeknownst to me at the time, um, when Rodney had become the first and only African-American to ever chair the Senate Finance Committee in the state, he put the money in the, in the budget to build a new school of public affairs. And so I go to have lunch with Dr. Slade to let her know I, want, you know, I was gonna come off my leave of absence to return to the university. And she asked me, instead of going over to back to the law school, would I go be the associate dean at the School of Public Affairs and help build the building. So I chaired the building committee to build the building, the Barbara Jordan Mickey Lane School of Public Affairs building. Um, and I served as associate dean for about six years um, of external affairs. Um, then I, I finally got out of that for a little bit. Then I ended up being interim director of the Mickey Leland Center. You know, I've worked for, I've been executive assistant to two president of the university um, but what I learned from my time at council too was this, we have a lot of young African-Americans who can help you run a campaign, but we didn't have enough who could help you govern. And at the time, I wasn't even thinking about that when doctors, uh, thinking about public affairs, um, when Dr. Slade asked me, I was going to do it from the law school. But it ended up that the problem I saw from that experience, one of the problems I saw, I ended up being in a place where I could help address that. So now we've had a bunch of uh, undergrad and graduate students, I thought, uh, do White House fellowships, work in state governments. Um, one of the things I did with Rodney when he first went to the Senate was we created the um, TLIP, Texas Legislative Internship Program, and he created it because of a program Mickey did when he was in Congress and uh, Rodney worked for Mickey. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it's interesting the things that pass from people to people yeah. because of some, somebody else did it for him. Um, so, um, when John Rutley was president at Texas Southern University, um, a young man by the name of Josh McMichael got killed off campus in Third Ward. Um, Rutley established, asked me to do it, and I set up for him the Joshua McMichael internship program. Um, got it started. Fortunate, unfortunately, it, it, it didn't continue once I stepped out of the role. Um, but Shakira Dennis, who um, was student body government president at Texas Southern University when I was there, now has her own business, Next Wave Strategy. So there's just a bunch of um, that kind of service yeah. that I've also tried to put in. You've mentioned your wife uh, quite a bit. How important was having support of family through this process of your involvement with politics over this extended period of time? So 
even before my wife, let me talk about my brother, because she knew Marcus. Every place I went, um, I mean, literally, we slept in the same bed together growing up as kids, we went to the same school. We were a couple of years apart in age. But when I came to Houston, he was in graduate school in New Jersey. We went to the same undergraduate school, went to the State together. He played basketball on the high school team, ran track. I played basketball, ran track. You both pledged that other fraternity that we're not going to name. But. Yeah, I was his dean of pledgey. There's only one fraternity on Omega Sci-Fi, <laughs> even though I know you campus and Alice. I mean, <laughs> here's the weird, you know, here's the weird thing. Uh, James Douglas has been like a, a older brother younger dad to me. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time around the Alphas uh, several years ago when they first built the uh, um, MLK monument on the mall. Um, it was Congressional Black Caucus weekend. We all go up to Congressional Black Caucus weekend. And I go to Congressional Black Caucus weekend, me, Douglas, you other folks are up there. Um, and it's like the night we check in. So you're travel dressed. And he calls me up, uh, you want to have dinner? So I, I'm figuring if two buddies going to go have dinner. I say, yeah. But it turns out I end up in a ballroom, um, and they're doing a celebratory dinner for uh, Harry Johnson for building the, the monument on the mall. And maybe about 15, 20 minutes into it, it dawns on me that this is a all-alpha event. <laughs> And I'm the only Q in the room. I'm glad y'all didn't invite me that night. <laughs> so I lean over to Douglas and I go, if anything pops off, I can take all of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I spent a lot of time. Uh, the Kappas, y'all are down the street from me. Sure. But I talk about Marcus all the time because, um, you know, that was my rock. Um, then when I got married, I had two people. Um, my wife is uh, named Makita. Um, she's the daughter of a bishop in the AME church. And right? so probably from being a PK, a, a preacher's kid, to then helping her dad get elected bishop, she had some understanding. Now, when we got married, it wasn't like I'm a politician. You know, I was we, we just got married. But as I don't think you can do public service, whether it's elected office or all the kind of stuff you and I do. And uh, I mean, I remember nights we wouldn't finish when we were rebuilding the chamber till nine, 10 o'clock at night. And then you had to go hang out with people after the meeting to work on making sure all the things. So when you don't have a, a, a spouse who's into service, um, and understands it like you, you, uh, you're doing it. I don't think you can do it. Uh, I just don't. And I was lucky uh, that one, my wife just fell into the Robinson family. Yeah. And the Robinson family was a service family like hers was. So, you know, my my oldest sister is a teacher. So you can't be a teacher without having a service mentality because you're spending your own money. You're working at the end of the day. You're working on Saturdays. Um, my two 
three of my younger sisters are in healthcare. Mm. One works um, in the cancer area, you know, my niece. So Makita just made it easy to serve because it didn't bother her mm -hmm. that if we went someplace, people would come over and want help. She wasn't offended. She didn't feel like she was being left out. Um, you know, we helped each other. So it, it was, <clears throat> it was just perfect. Um, you, you just can't get any better than that. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, she, all, you know, I always call it the, the Huxtable because you know, you get the test. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something. When was the first anniversary of the second? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, this isn't a test, but uh, what advice might you offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? You don't always have to kill flies with bazookas. Mm. Harvey Kesselman used to tell me that when I was, uh, when he first came into my life. And it probably wasn't until in my, my, my 40s that I, I finally figured it out. Um, you know, I, uh, my first year of, at the law school, I taught research and writing. So you do, I, I, I'm a nerd. So I did a lot of reading around brain science, how people learn, and I'm a flat thinker. Uh, some people are hierarchical. They need everything. Um, I'm pretty qu quick. You give me the data and I can take it, absorb it and figure out an answer. And so a lot of time, a lot of times I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move and people aren't ready to move. And that used to frustrate me and I would want to go. Mm. And I, I learned you, you got to wait for people to get a reasonable amount of time because but sometimes you have to go, but you don't always have to start with, I got to go. Yeah. And that would be the advice I would give a younger person. Um, uh, there's a, a, a young lawyer at Marcus's law firm, and that's the advice I give her all the time. Um, because you can see someone with talent, but it's talent built on hard work. Mm -hmm. And because they put the work into it, they're ready to go and they can't figure out why other people aren't ready to go. And, you know, I, I'm always telling her from life, my experience, you can't just go yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, sometimes you've got to be the one that slows down to help bring the other people along. Sure. And you got to do it in a way that they don't take offense at you helping to bring them along or where they think you think you're smarter than they are. Um, you know, I, you know I, I, I tell people all the time, one of the rules I have is I think I know everything. And the first thing I know is that I don't know everything. Yeah. So what would you tell uh, someone who has an interest in 
building a career in politics, for example, or public service. So what I would, I'd say figure out what problem you want to fix. Then start anywhere you can to help fix that problem. And then the best opportunity to keep doing that work, take it. Don't have a don't have a pre-planned destination. You can't plan to be president. You can't plan to be the state senator. What you can plan to do is help fix that problem or those problems. And as you do that, <clears throat> people will go, hey, La Lu is fixing that problem. And they'll come and they'll ask you to help them fix another problem. And once people see you as the person they can turn to to fix problems, they naturally want to put you in places where they know you'll help fix problems that they have. And that's probably the best and easiest way to build a career um, in public service. And, um, you know, always be, always be nice and kind to people. Uh, I'm working for James Douglas. Uh, at the time, he's president of the university. And I tell people this all the time. I'm executive assistant to the president of the university. And the only person that can let the president and the executive assistant in the Hannah Hall is the janitor. Because the president and the executive assistant don't have no keys to any of the doors to Hannah Hall. And my, my, my mom always says, and she said it a lot when we were young, always be kind to people on the way up because you never know who you're going to need on the way down. You know, because you're riding high one day don't mean you can't be riding low the next. And, you know, you don't, you don't never know who is who. So you don't know who you're sitting next to on the plane. You don't know who's at the table across from you in a restaurant. I mean, you don't know who's in front of you in the line in the post office. And so if you just, if you're just a decent person that treats everybody kindly, uh, you know, uh, in politics, there's a, I can't remember where I read it. If you, if you can't kill the king, don't shoot the king. Uh, adopt the mentality of, don't go to war unless it's just absolutely necessary. You don't have to go to war with everybody over everything. Mm -hmm. You know, you can let people be if they're negative drained. You don't have to go try to kill everybody off. You're still very much active in, uh, in the political process. Talk to me about some of what you're involved with now. Well, now I'm state chairman of the Texas Coalition of Black Democrats. Uh, this is probably, I'm close to the end of, of my career in my mindset. Um, my mom and dad were always going to go off and enjoy life after they retired. My dad got sick and uh, passed away. So that's fundamentally changed me. Um, and so I'm getting to a number now for me where it's time to give my wife back some of the time that she let me take away from her in Kirkland. Um, and the last thing I really, really want to do is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big infrastructure. You know, you build it 
and it can sustain. And I think we need better organized black political infrastructure. So we built the chamber. In politics, you gotta have people with money to help support your campaign, but you also need political infrastructure. Um, people who know how to run a campaign, people who know how to be in office. We started a candidate, uh, a campaign school. Um, Shakira has picked it up um, and that's growing and moving. Um, we need people who understand not just how to help you in this new age of the new tools of politics, but we also need people who can go with you in the public office and can understand policy and how they intersect uh, with politics. So the coalition is a statewide organization focused on making sure that uh, Black Democrats have a voice in the Democratic Party and in the policymaking process. And all I'm trying to do is improve and institutionalize it. Um, I've never believed in um, the individual, build an organization around the individual. When I came in, I don't know if you remember, when I came to the chamber, I said, um, let's build a chamber so it's not dependent on any one person and that we'll have four or five, six generations. Succession planning sure. is important. And so for too long, we've been transient in politics. And after Mickey died, we really didn't have um, somebody who decided to step up and offer that statewide leadership. I'm not saying I'm Mickey Leland. I'm saying I was here and I saw how it worked. And so I have a sense of how to try to put the institutional pieces in place. So what I hope when I finish these next couple of years is there'll be four or five, six generationally younger black men and women who can move into party leadership. We've never had a black state party chair. Um, back in the 90s, I ran to be state party chair of the Texas Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I got to know Bill White before Bill White became mayor of the city. Houston, yep. Yeah, and uh, in fact, Bill and uh, Andrea uh, hosted uh, the uh, uh, the engagement party Makita and I had at mm -hmm. Bill White's house. Um, again, all of this is all blessings. I, I, I'll say serendipity, but it's just all those interconnections. Um, but that's what we're trying to do with the Texas Coalition of Black Democrats. So we have a great slate of officers, Sharon Berry, uh, Kelly McLaurin, uh, Patrick is our interim vice chair of finance, Eric Igwe, who's up in Tarrant County, Constance Jones here. So we've got them. We've got 21 chapters. We've got about four or five more chapters being built. So by the time I finish, I hope to be around 50 chapters, 100,000 dues paid members. And so when the black community says, We've been wronged. Not only can we be in the streets marching and protesting, but we'll have the infrastructure to do legislative work. So we've got a policy team. We'll have an agenda for this coming legislative session. We're going to hire a lobbyist. 
you know, we're going to have an ongoing sustainable organization. The good thing, the state uh, chair of the Black Chamber is a former chair and board member with us from the Greater Houston Black Chamber of Commerce. So now all these pieces that have been built, the lawyers, the MBA, uh, you know, one the, the thing I take great pride in, there's only one city in all of the country where all the black professional organizations leadership meet on a regular basis. Mm. And that's Houston and it's a part of the black chamber. And that's something we started when we served on the chamber board together. Um, and I'm going to try to replicate that on a statewide basis. Um, we've already, the, uh, the coalition has already donated to all the non-incumbent African-American um, uh, state house candidates. We're going to do county uh, office candidates and we're working on plans to work with uh, judicial candidates. Uh, we have two African-Americans who will be on the statewide ballot. Stacy Williams for the Supreme Court, um, Elizabeth Frizzell, who was a classmate with Marcus. Um, I think she was a, uh, a year ahead when I started teaching first years, they were like second, second or third years. Um, so now this generation of young people that I've known or taught in law school are now judges, um, general counsels in, in major corporations in the state. You know, so the network is out there to be weaved together. So I want you to offer some closing remarks, but also as part of those remarks, if you had an ideal long-term big picture for black political power, uh, would you describe that and then would have closing remarks? So let me start with this. This interview, that means you and what you're doing with not just this interview, but all the interviews you're doing in this series. Sure is a part of what I see. And it's not my, it's, it's not so much my vision. Um, Rodney Ellis said one time that the last great idea died with Socrates. Just look around and see what other people are doing and steal it. Now, because I'm an academician, I said, you know, I cleaned it up and said, we benchmark, mm. we baseline. And we've never had a black United States Senator from Texas. We've never had a black chair of the state party. We've never had a black chair of the Harris County Democratic Party. So when I look out, what I see is not just black people in political power. I see what uh, Maynard Jackson started trying to do, what Mickey started trying to do. A number of the richest black people in Texas grew wealth because Mickey Leland understood that political power was meant to leverage civil rights, social justice, and economic empowerment. Uh, politics had been used in the past to exclude Black people from access to economic opportunity. You got bad schools, so you got a bad education, so you couldn't compete. They use political power to make sure you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan even though you were paying taxes. That your side of the community didn't get 
the streets, the streetcars. They use the economic and political power to build a highway to split your black community. So for me, what I see is like Maynard did, you use political power to make sure you have black folks on corporate board, but you want black folks who understand it's not just about them getting some money, it's about making sure that access to capital and opportunity is expanded so that you can lift in Texas now, let's say the, 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 the median income for the black community is under 40,000. You wanna to try to figure out how to lift the median income in the black community, 50, 60,000. You know, that, that's where I'm trying to go now with what's the closing chapters for me in my, in my political career. I'll never stop doing public service, but um, I just don't have the, the energy bandwidth to do it like I was doing it when I was 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, now you get off the plane when we get back to traveling. Um, it's not like you bounce back in a day and you're ready to go again. Staying up till two in the morning and then getting up at six and going again, you could do that for a day or two. You can't do that for weeks on end. So what I'm trying to do is identify the next generation of people, black people who get it and explain to them, here's a way you can make your way through. And as you make your way through, identify other people of like mind and build together, go on the journey together and help lift each other up, not just in the public sector, but also make sure you have friends in the private sector. I mean, if you look back, there's always this troika. I'm just using the presidential model. One of the three friends is gonna be the politician. One of the three friends is gonna be the strategist. And one of the three friends is gonna be the rich business person. So that the friend that wants to be in politics can have the money to run the campaign that the strategy friend comes up with. And that's where I'm trying to go now. Um, and I think I have a pretty good network of folks out there who get it and who are now starting to grow and build those additional network. Um, so there'll be, uh, everything goes well will elect a young guy, Christian Menifee, who will be under 40 and he'll be county attorney in a county that's bigger than 26 states. So for all practical purposes, he'll be a, uh, an attorney general of a state yeah. that can make a big difference um, and then can be a counterbalance to some of the craziness you know, I see. Um, I just think it's this, for me, this is not political. The black community is health disadvantaged. And so in the middle of a pandemic, we don't have elected officials who are trying to figure out how to keep people safe by making it easier to vote, figuring out how to modernize the economy. Instead, they go, hey, go out there, play Russian roulette with your health, and good luck to you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, 
sign this waiver that if you do get it and you die, you and your family get nothing. I mean, it harkens back to a heartlessness that has been um, too much of America for the black community. Uh, uh, there's a book, I can't think of the name of it, uh, but it's about Maynard Jackson. Read anything about Maynard Jackson, and what it was like to, to, for him to be mayor of Atlanta mm. and how Atlanta became a black economic mecca. And that's been the touchstone, the thing I've been chasing along with what Mickey did that I saw here, that you bring black people together who are in public office to understand they have a responsibility to be a part of the economic solution for their community. I think that's why you see what you see from uh, Rodney Ellis now as a county commissioner, but he was doing that when he was in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. um, it's This has been remarkable. Uh, I wanna thank you for making the time. Uh, if I can, if I can recap appropriately, start with where you are and doing the things that matter in your community. Uh, if you decide to run, know why you're deciding to run and understand what problems you're trying to solve. Understand that it's probably more flexible for you to solve problems from the outside than through elected office and black wealth matters. My guest today has been Carol G. Robinson, professor at Texas Southern University. My name is Lalu Davis Yemitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. Oh